Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is writer, translator, and editor Daniel Galera. He is the winner of the Sao Paulo Literature Prize for his 2013 novel, Blood Drenched Beard. His new novel is 20 After Midnight, published by our friends at Penguin. Daniel, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And first, Daniel, I have been asking everyone over these past few months a version of this question, and I'm going to ask you as well. Uh, Your answer is especially interesting to me as I have not yet spoken to anyone in your part of the world. Um, Can you tell me, how is your day-to-day life under the coronavirus, and how are you finding the marketing of a novel during this time? Okay. Um, yeah, uh, I live here in Porto Alegre with my my wife and my my daughter. She's almost three years old, and so being in quarantine uh, is not lonely. We are in isolation, but mm. it's a family yep. isolation, and that has specific. Uh, characteristics and here in Porto Alegre there were strict quarantine measures since March and this helped uh, delay the infections for a couple of months but we are going through the peak of cases right now here in Porto Alegre so it's a moment to be very watchful and and, and, and careful Mm -hmm. and when all this began uh, of course my work schedule my work habits um, they were uh, destroyed, and it was a long time just trying to find a way to, to 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 have this time to work again. And but with time, we start to develop a new new routine, new home routine. And I was already I had started working on a new book um, shortly before the, the outbreak of the pandemics. Mm-hmm. So I had to stop for a while until we could gather the situation and and know we are safe and but now I can work a little bit every day again and my book is, is progressing but it is it has a lot of, of there's some fear some anxiety involved um, most of the available work uh, for me and my family is gone now so um, it's it's you watch the news every day it can get a little bit overwhelming and, and, and depressing sometimes so we try to find this balance of being sufficiently informed about what's going on in order to protect ourselves but also protect other people and help to, to make things better and but also protect ourselves from this this, this overload of bad news and so we're able to work and to share a good time together the family as well and just stay mentally healthy and yeah but we have good days and we have bad days as always and excellent just hoping this this past uh, yeah. soon Absolutely, and it sounds uh, very very similar to the situation that we have here. Thank you so much, Daniel. Um, next, I would like to ask you about your work as a translator. You have translated the works of Zadie Smith, David Mitchell, and others 
into Portuguese. I'm here reading 20 After Midnight in translation. This wonderful translation being produced, of course, by Julia Sanchez. Uh, can you talk to us about the craft of translation, maybe using Zadi Smith as an example, and what it is like for you as a translator reading your work in translation? Do you get a first pass of the novel in English, for example, before it is published by Penguin? Um, yes, 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 I translate from English myself. Uh, the English language is a very special case for me because uh, I can uh, exchange with the translators and have these very exciting conversations with them. Um, not every translator likes to talk to the author when they're working, but uh, the, the translators that translated my books into English, they were of this kind that, that enjoyed having this exchange. And that is my case too. So I had this great and exciting conversation during the process with Julia Sanchez. And she did an outstanding work. Um, she has a very you know, great talent to, to, to to bring in this contemporary Brazilian language into into English, in my opinion. So it was very rewar rewarding to me. Uh, of course, in the, the case of other languages, um, my books were translated into a few other languages. Uh, I can't do that kind of, of exchange, and I just have to, to trust the translator and trust the, the publisher that they're doing uh, good work. And being a translator myself, I, I came to believe that uh, Translating is, in great part, uh, creative work. You know, usually, uh, sometimes the best translation to a sentence is going to be a literal translation, but in most cases, it is not. There's a lot of, 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 of creative work involved in, in having a truthful translation of a sentence or a paragraph and an entire book. So uh, I came to see my translators as a little bit of writers, in that sense, you know, they, they are uh, writing all, all over again uh, in order to, to, to bring my work into another language. And I just have the feeling that I usually trust them. I never had a bad experience of learning afterwards that some of my books were, you know, they got a bad translation into some language. Uh, usually readers that, that reach for me, they, they're happy to inform that the translation is good. So I had good um, experiences in that sense. So for me, it's just this, it's an exciting process uh, from beginning to end. Excellent. Thank you, Daniel. And now I would like to jump into your novel, 20 After Midnight. I would like to unpack the first line of this novel because there is so much going on here. Uh, the first line in English is, my sudden urge to accelerate the world's destruction was connected in a way to the human shit stinking up the sidewalks and the fumes wafting up from the slime pulled around the city's dumpsters to the bus strike and the widespread despair over the late January heat smothering Porto Alegre. But if there was a before and an after, a line that separated the life I thought I'd have from the life I ended up having, this line was the news of Andre's death the night before when he was robbed at gunpoint near Hospital de Clinicas, just a few blocks from the Ramiro Barcelos neighborhood where I was walking. Daniel, as I said, there's a lot going on in this sentence. This sentence gives us so much information. Can you talk to us about how you formulated that line to begin your novel and all of the information that is delivered within it? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, I think you're right, uh, Jason. There's, there's a lot going on in that first sentence. And I believe there is an explanation, um, some kind of justification for that. Uh, this book was published in Brazil in 2016, and I wrote it, and mostly during 2015. But the book takes place in the year of 2014. Um, it begins in January, as we, we know here. And uh, what made me have the idea to write this novel was a very personal experience that I had here in Porto Alegre that is very similar, maybe almost exactly what uh, what's going on in this first paragraph. Um, the month of January of 2014 here, it's our summer, and we have a, we had a very severe heat wave, and uh, the public transportation, the workers were on strike. Mm. The city was empty because it was the summer holidays, and there was uh, also, um, there were a lot of robberies and, and murders going on. There was also a wave of violence uh, in town, in Porto Alegre. Um, there was trash all over the, the sidewalks. So it was the first time in my life that I looked around me and I said, well, we, we talk a lot about apocalypse. We watch movies and read books and read fiction about uh, the, the post-apocalypse. And you no, know, it's fiction. I mean, it's supposed to be a commentary on, on the present, on the reality of the, of the present. But if there were to be an apocalypse, maybe the beginning would feel a little bit like this, like what's going on you know, on these few days here in Porto Alegre. And so, of course, that that's an, uh, that feeling, it, it passed rather quickly. But it, uh, it left me a, a strong impression that I was, you know, that I came to the point of considering that uh, some actual apocalypse was beginning to take shape. So that was the first spark that, that made me write this book. And uh, from there, I moved to create all these, these three narrators, my, my three main characters and their, their stories. Mm-hmm. But in order to be able to even begin writing the novel, because I also been a little bit paralyzed creatively in that period, uh, I felt the need to just cram all that sensation and all that information uh, in the beginning of the, of the book. And then, you know, the, the first sentences, sentences I was writing, I had to be this, this flag that was putting on the ground that, that you know, just brought all my intentions and my need to write about this feeling. So what eventually it became this, this first this opening, with, with which you, you, you read right now. And I'm happy about it. I think it, 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 you know, it, what I wanted from it, I think it's working. Absolutely. Thank you, Daniel. A fantastic first sentence. And as you mentioned, this novel has three protagonists, Aurora, Antero, and Emiliano, who are dealing with the fallout surrounding the murder of their friend, Andre, who they called Duke. Uh, These four people, the three protagonists and Duke, met or at least became close acquaintances when they worked on an online literary journal that existed in a version of the internet that predated the one that we currently know. Uh, can you describe this journal, the community these characters formed around it, and how the bond of working on this journal carried them through their lives? Mm-hmm, sure. Yeah, the, 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 the four uh, friends in the novel, uh, Andre, which is dead when the novel starts, and Antero, Emiliano, and Aurora, they used to work on this 
uh, online journal that was sent by email. It was, it was a newsletter before we called them newsletters. And this was inspired in a, in a true uh, newsletter I sent with friends here in Porto Alegre and in the turn of the, the millennium from 1998 to, to 2001, more or less. It was not called Orangutan, uh, it had another name. But when I started to write the novel, um, one thing I wanted to do was to have these, these present-day characters looking back to their lives in, in, in 1999, before the turn of the millennium, and just comparing all their dreams, their ideals, and their expectations for the future with what, what their lives eventually became in 2014. And I decided I was going to do a fictionalized version of this group of friends that I myself had in those years that had this newsletter and so on. Um, this newsletter we wrote, uh, today no, no, no one remembers, but uh, when it was going on back then, it was very successful. I mean, we had like five or 6,000 subscribers and people talked about it in, in universities and on the, uh, the artists were collaborating with it. So it was a very exciting time of, of my life. And I tried to, to think about this nostalgia or this, the way I, I, I miss those days and put that into this feeling my characters have of you know comparing what they're living right now in their adult lives to how their lives were when they were younger. And so I, I, I drew a little bit, but more than a little, from my own experiences and from this real project that we had, uh, some friends in, in our you know, communication university here in Porto Alegre. Excellent. Thank you so much, Daniel. And now I want to back up for a moment to the, the previous question about the first line in the novel um, where Aurora, I believe, is walking down the street and finds out that Andre was murdered. Uh, the second line begins, I stopped so abruptly while trying to process that information on my Twitter feed. That information, again, being the murder of Duke. And Daniel, technology, specifically social technology, plays such a huge role in this novel. Uh, Duke was murdered, we think, for his cell phone as he was using a GPS running app. Uh, Twitter is described here in the line I just read. Characters are constantly using WhatsApp. A lecture later in the novel references ICQ. Uh, a character broadcasts herself on Chatterbait. Uh, can you talk to us about the importance of using social technology, specifically social media, as a reference in this novel, 20 After Midnight? Yeah, sure. Um, there was a very deliberate effort that I, I tried to do in this novel to, to map and to understand and think about how digital technology and, and social networks are impacting uh, our lives today. So that takes shape in many, many scenes and many aspects of the novel. I think you, you pointed a few ones that are very important. Um, the first one being the very beginning where you know, this one of the main characters learned that her best friend um, is dead in a robbery while surfing on the Twitter timeline. And um, there are also things like about the, the, the legacy or how the, all the information that was left, that, that, that Andre, that that 
friend, a writer, left on the internet, how this information is going to be treated and remembered or erased, it, how that impacts their friends, their family. Um, this is these are things I was thinking a lot about at the time. Um, also, it is important the way that digital technology affects the personal and romantic and sexual relationships between all the characters. There's a little bit of a game where uh, the, I think many of the main characters, they, they feel desire for one another during the story, in different times of the story, and they never manage to really meet um, and, and have those desires fulfilled or experienced in any concrete way. But at the same time, they're having all these connections over the internet. Uh, so it's a, it's a desire mediated by, by the network all the time. And in my own view, I think, I, I, I don't follow the view that the internet made our personal or intimate relations, uh, relationships worse. I think it has changed it uh, sometimes radically, but it's not. That doesn't mean make them worse. I think there's a lot of interesting uh, true connection and true, you know, experiences uh, to be had, to, to be had, to be to be lived through different digital technologies. So I try to make that appear in, in the novel as well. For example, when when Aurora is recovering from a abortion in, uh, in uh, her apartment in Sao Paulo, she's feeling very alone. And we know that she's have, she has these, these, these uh, encounters with other people uh, in Chatterbait, uh, which is a platform for having uh, video chats with other people that want to have sex or you know just expose their bodies and so on. And to her that it is very fulfilled, uh, it fulfills her life and gives her something that she's not being able to find. Uh, in any other form in that specific period of her, her life. She also works, uh, spends you know, like 12 hours every day working in a lab in university doing her research. So to her, Chatterbait is something really important. I try to, 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 to make the reader realize that um, we're not necessarily lose, only losing things, we are also gaining new kinds of, of uh, relationship, of ways to, to uh, realize our desires. Uh, with the internet that's where I believe absolutely thank you so much Daniel listeners we are going to take a break for a word from our sponsor and then I will be right back with Daniel Galera the Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name, but you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Daniel Galera, author of 20 After Midnight, which is published by our friends at Penguin. Daniel, I want to continue for another moment 
on the thread of social media technology that we were speaking about before the break, there is a scene in the first chapter where Aurora walks towards her mother, and her mother hurriedly closes a Facebook tab in order to expose instead a program where she is uh, drawing, digitally of course. I have walked up on people hurriedly closing Facebook tabs. You have too, I am sure. Why do you think people are so fast to hide what they are doing on social media around their friends and loved ones when by the nature of the medium they are interacting with, they are sharing their personal information that they are digesting and inputting with the world, with corporations, with data farms, etc. What does this type of action tell us about human behavior in our time? Um, I don't know. I think we have this ambiguous relationship with social networks and the way we use them. Um, of course, they they were revolutionary in expanding the ways we can connect to other people and exchange information and so on. Um, but also, we feel there's they oppress and they control us in 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 some way. Um, I think there is kind of a secret feeling of guilty to almost everyone that, that uh, indulges in, in using social networks, um, which I'm not sure to what extent it is justifiable, but it's never, nevertheless something we feel. And we don't want to, to be, you know, be, to reveal too much about the way we use them. Um, I think this has to do with a, uh, it is a feeling that by using social networks, we are being led to behave in specific ways. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if I'm making this clear, but uh, we are supposedly, you know, expressing our opinions and being ourselves very intensely when we uh, have a social network um, profile or many profiles. But in fact, uh, a lot of what we do when using social network um, is very determined by the way they work. So they get us to behave in a certain way uh, through giving likes to what other people post, to, I don't know, trying to affirm our identities and, you know, giving opinion as a way of feeling better with ourselves, not because we have something to uh, useful to express and so on. So what uh, I think deep inside we feel that we are being, I don't like the word manipulated, but you no, know, our behavior is being shaped by the way the social networks work uh, in a way that it's not really as spontaneous as we pretend it is when we are using them. And there is a, should, there should be maybe a name for this feeling of secret guilt that we feel. And I don't know, that, that, that scene you mentioned in the book maybe has a little bit to do with that. I mean, why would Aurora's mother have to close the tab where she's in her Facebook, you know, because her daughter came to talk to her. She had to pretend she's working all the time, but no, we know she's not. And, but it's like, it's like so she was watching something forbidden, which is probably not the case. It's just that, you know, I don't want to be seen doing this. But actually, there's nothing wrong, but she feels that way. Thank you so much for that answer, Daniel. Um, next, I would like to talk about Emiliano. Uh, Emiliano is tasked with writing a biography of Duke uh, 
on the day of Duke's funeral. Duke was a very young man and a very famous writer when he died. Uh, he was in his 30s, I believe. Emiliano worries that Duke had not lived a long enough life for a biography, but his publisher, of course, doesn't care. They just want to capitalize on the moment. Can you talk to us about this desire for a quick biography of such a young man, the potential problems of rushing something like this to market, and were you referencing any authors that this had happened to? Um, I don't think I have any specific author in mind uh, or thinking about that anything similar had happened. Um, I think this, this, this part of the plot uh, has to do with two, two things. One of them is that Andre is, or, or Duke, he, he's one of the protagonists. He's one of the main characters. But he does not appear in the book. He, he, he does not act. He does not. He's dead when the book, uh, the book starts. And we only know about him because of what other people say or remember about him. And I say all the time that he was very influential. He was one of the, you know, the most important names in contemporary Brazilian literature. But we never really know why, you know. And I could have developed the, the reasons for his success and why he was so important in such an early age. Uh, I could have tried to, to develop that and to create that and expose it in a novel. But uh, ultimately, I decided to leave it un unspoken, you know. So the reader is authorized to suspect that Andre was, you know, so much of a genius, like uh, the other characters are saying all the time. It's supposed to be, you know, a little bit hazy in that sense. And so the, the, the reason for, for a biography, uh, it's supposed to be, there's supposed to be some doubt about it. So uh, on the other hand, uh, at least in Brazil, it is very common to see today uh, autobiographies, self-biographies or, or ghost-written biographies um, of, uh, about the lives of very young people that are not only alive, but they are in their 20s or, or 30s. And usually they are these very quick celebrities that, that appear uh, on, on YouTube and so on. And books are written about their lives as if their life was really special, you know, and if you get to read them, it's always more or less the same kind of story. And so it is a little bit of, of a comment about that phenomenon too. But I think Emiliano feels strange about uh, writing this book. I think he, he really believes that Andre was special, and, but he does not believe he has had such an interesting life, you know. To have a very influential and interesting and important uh, work uh, will not always mean that you have a life that's, that's worth uh, telling. You know, and he secretly believed that Andre is one of the escapes. His work was really uh, outstanding, but he was just this, this guy that you, you cannot really say anything special about him unless you get to know him in person, but uh, it was not a life full of interesting events or anything. So that and the guilt about, about writing about his life so early after his death are part of his, his conflict about taking on this project project of writing the biography, which eventually he does because he needs the money, and that's a cruel, cruel part of it, you know. He's a journalist, and uh, he's out of work mostly in the last few years, and 
just need the money. So that eventually is what makes him accept the offer. Thank you, Daniel. Um, continuing along the lines a little bit of technology and the internet in our current age, I want to talk to you about TED Talks. Uh, I have never been a huge fan of TED Talks, these kind of bite-sized inspirational meme programs, but the idea of someone delivering a TED Talk on the Marquis de Sade's 120 Days of Sodom as it relates to internet pornography and marketing, specifically the idea of using the Marquis de Sade to sell more tissue uh, is hilarious to me. Uh, and this is a lecture that is delivered by the novel's third protagonist, uh, Antero. And I imagine we have more listeners who are familiar with TED Talks than who are familiar with 120 Days of Sodom. Can you tell our listeners a bit about this work, 120 Days of Sodom by the Marquis de Sade, and how you decided to turn it into a TED Talk? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, about TED Talks, and I watched some great TED Talks, uh, but I, I also came to uh, identify a pattern on them. And it's a kind of rhetoric that uh, irritates me a little bit. And, mm. you know, it's the thing, the thing of forcing all kinds of complex ideas into a narrative of personal success and have a little bit of a flavor of a self-help book and so on. So uh, in this scene where Antero gives his TED talk, there's a little bit of a joke about that. That includes the TED talk, but also the character. And because Antero, um, he's very intelligent, he's well-read, he's, he's bright, but he's also very full of himself and you know he's a narcissist and a very cynical individual. And Antero plans his TED talk to be a provocation. You know, He feels like he's going to break from the formula and bring some havoc to the event of the TED Talk. And in a way he does, but of course the reader uh, is well aware that he's also a narcissist and he is not as subversive as his beliefs. So, and that's supposed to be, there's supposed to be a little bit of irony in what he's doing there. But about what is his, his, his talk itself and the argument about Marquis de Sade, um, I, I actually like it a lot. I think it's, it's, it's a smart point uh, that Marquis de Sade was an algorithmical writer, a bon la lettre, so to say. Um, because when I read Marquis de Sade, especially the 120 Days of Sodom, um, I read it many years ago, and then I read, I reread it more recently. I mean, the year before I wrote 20 After Midnight. And one thing that really caught my attention and that disturbed me was the way that Marquis de Sade is very obsessive when he quantifies his fantasies and desires. I mean, uh, everything has to be described and, and, and or given specific and descriptive values and everything has to be combined and recombined again and again. So you, you get a feeling he wants to cover all the possible combinations of several elements of things that uh, excite and disturb him and put them that into writing, into, into fiction. And to me that feels a lot, like very, it's very similar to the way current generations treat desire in the digital uh, realm. Uh, when you think about the way pornography, for example, um, 
spread over the internet and became such an important part of people's sexual uh, learning and sexual lives. And the way pornography is distributed and classified on the internet. Um, I see a direct connection to what my kid was doing when he wrote his, his fiction. And I don't, I don't know, I got into thinking about all these this, this, this connections and similarities and differences. So that was, uh, that's where the, the idea of the statue came from. So it doesn't matter if you think Antero is a, is a you know, is, is bright, he's intelligent, or if he's uh, fraud, but I think the point he's making there is, is interesting. Absolutely, as do I. Thank you, Daniel. Um, to stick with Antero for a moment, his wife makes video games. Uh, they met when she was on a panel at a literary festival in Brasilia. Um, I run a literary festival here in North Carolina with my colleague, Kristen Ellie, the North Carolina Book Festival, and we have programmed video game writers and programmers before. Uh, this is an interesting intersection to me. Can you talk about the idea of video games as a literary medium? Um, sure. Um, I'm a lot into video games. I, since I was very young, I played a lot of video games. And at some point, after I became a writer, I started to think a little bit more deeply about them too and, and read books about video game narratives. And what I think is interesting about video games, there's all this talk that video games uh, must have more sophisticated uh, stories and characters and narratives. And when you pay attention to that discussion, uh, you feel like people want to video games to, to include um, text and music and uh, visual aesthetics uh, that are borrowed from other mediums, you know. So a good story in a video game would be a well, uh, some well-written story that could be in a book, for example. Mm. So I believe that is a very wrong way to 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 see what is really special about, about video game narrative, which is its interactive um, aspect. And in my experience as a gamer, I learned that the most profound and, and lasting experiences, they came not from uh, text or music or video or animation, but from um, things I did, you know, um, the way I interacted with the game uh, told a story that I remember. So that happens in a way that you cannot find in books and comics and movies and theater anywhere else. Um, I think that the best video games are the, the games that understand that. They make you experience good stories, not because of they are well written from a text point of view, but because the interaction is shaped in such a way that it will make you live a story through that interaction. And, well, I, I wrote an essay about this, so I could go on, but uh, I'll, I'll stop right here. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a subject that's really interesting to me. 
That's fantastic, Daniel. I would love to read uh, that essay. Maybe you can um, send it to me afterwards, or after we're done recording, I'll ask about it again. Um, Finally, I would like to ask you about the title of your novel, 20 After Midnight, and this is normally a question that I would lead an interview with, but we will end with this question uh, here. I approached your novel assuming 20 After Midnight was a reference to a doomsday clock, uh, which I suppose it kind of is in a funny way, Uh, but it is a reference to New Year's Eve, specifically to New Year's Eve in 1999, when a percentage of the world was worrying about Y2K um, and a computer bug. Our friends in this novel are in the woods enjoying one another's company so much that they forget to look at the clock until 20 after midnight. Uh, For all of the talk, Daniel, about technology and references to technology and communications that occur through technology in this novel, are you telling us through the title to put these things aside? Or was Y2K sort of the tipping point where we all fell into our devices and were never able to look back? Yeah. Well, um, the way I see the, the, the title, the 20th the Midnight thing, and I can put it this way. I think the, the novel is mostly about the feeling of the end of the world. So we have these characters in 2014, they are in their 30s or even 40s, and they are starting to see their lives and their expectations, their their personal projects going bad and things just becoming more and more chaotic and there's great anxiety about the world beginning to end, the environment, politics, everything. We, We didn't have the pandemics then, but we could include that if I wrote a book today. And so one thing I tried to do with the book, they, they remember a lot about how their lives were in the 90s. And there was a lot of talk about the end of the world in the turn of the millennium. I remember that you mentioned the, the millennium bug. Um, but uh, even though we talked about a lot about the end of the world then, there was, I mean, there was actual fear about the economy crashing and things like that. And, you know, more mystical people uh, had very real beliefs about the world coming to an end. There were theories and, and predictions and Nostradamus and so on. But of course, there was the, 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 the New, New, New Year's Eve parties and everybody woke up on the 1st of January of, of the year 2000 and everything was perfectly fine and nothing changed. And so that's what the 20 after minute was about. I wanted to, to bring the reader to, to pay attention to how different it was to think about the end of the world then. It was supposed to be this big event, this, you know, the meteor crash, this minimum bug, this uh, one-time event. Uh, and soon after that, the world will be completely changed. We were living post-apocalyptical times or something like that. But what we experience now in the, since the year 2010 and more and more is that the end of the world might be already happening, but it will take a very long time. It's not a crash. It's not a bang. Um, it's something that might take decades, centuries, and 
there is an anxiety about things ending over and over and over, but no big end or big change or transformation in sight. Um, I think the anxiety the characters feel in the present is, is about that. So to me, the, the, this moment that I, that I tell in the novel, uh, near the end, about how they, they went to, to spend the, the, the turn of the millennium in this very distant place from, from city, you know, where they could not hear any anyone and any explosions or fireworks or anything, and they, they miss it. Nothing really happened, it's fine. But now they are in a time where the New Year's Eve is not significant in any special way, but things are ending every morning, you know, but ending a little bit. And not ending enough, but you know, you cannot stop it either. So it's a very strange feeling that I connect to, to, to contemporary life. And in each character's personal stories, their personal struggles, I try to tell this bigger story a little bit about how we, how we feel to, 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 to inhabit the present time. That's the way I see it, at least. I mean, readers might come to different conclusions about the novel, but uh, to me, that was one of the goals, to, to, to try to, to get around this feeling of anxiety that is very uh, present today. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Daniel. I loved this novel. I will be thinking about it for a very long time. I really appreciate you writing it, and I look forward to reading the rest of your work. Listeners, I have been speaking with Daniel Galera, author of 20 Past Midnight, published by our friends at Penguin. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jason. This was a great conversation, and thank you for the opportunity to talking a bit about my book and I hope readers will be interested in and read it and you can find me on Twitter and elsewhere if you want to talk about it Once again, I would like to thank Daniel Galera for joining me. Copies of 20 After Midnight can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one month of free audiobooks and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Bookin'.